0: I am frustrated and even angry that people are dying in some places in our country from droughts from fires from mudslides from floods uh, and and now from coronavirus because people don't want to believe the experts that that's that's a legitimate source of anger for anybody and we have a chance now to change it do something about it and i hope every american will take part in that process
1: John Kerry isn't pleased. As the nation marks the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, the former Senator and Secretary of State says a profound lack of leadership is causing the U.S. to fall behind on climate action and in leading the clean energy economy. We speak to Secretary Kerry in this episode. And we hear from Tia Nelson, the daughter of the founder of Earth Day. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Greentech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. In 2017, shortly after President Trump took office, former Secretary of State John Kerry wrote an op-ed for Earth Day explaining why he was optimistic the world would embrace climate solutions in time to save the planet, despite what he called the dysfunction in Washington. Flash forward to 2020, and does he still consider himself an optimist? In a moment, you'll hear our interview with Secretary Kerry about his outlook for the future of climate action. We get his views on abolishing the filibuster, decarbonizing the power grid, the role of fossil fuels, American leadership, or lack thereof, on the international stage, and more. We also get an update on Kerry's World War Zero coalition. It was launched last year with a high-profile cast of founding members in an effort to mobilize mass action to combat the climate crisis. The coalition's main goal is to host more than 10 million climate conversations in 2020 with citizens from all across the political spectrum. I speak to Kerry along with Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat on this podcast. He's a partner of the consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy as well as Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at S2C Pacific, and former Energy Advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. After that, we turn to a brief interview with Tia Nelson, Environmental Leader, Climate Program Director at the Outrider Foundation, and daughter of former Senator and Governor Gaylord Nelson, the founder of Earth Day. Tia was 13 years old on April 22, 1970, the first Earth Day ever. To mark the event's 50th anniversary, we get her thoughts on how the environmental movement has evolved over time. But first, here's our interview with former Secretary of State and founder of the World War Zero Climate Action Coalition, John Kerry. This episode is brought to you with support from EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum that aims to educate and inspire action toward a more sustainable future. The virtual EarthX 2020 conference and film fest is here. Online events take place through April 24th, followed by the March for Science Global Youth Forum on April 26th. Hear experts speak on island resilience, renewable energy, sustainable cities, clean tech investment, and more. Head over to earthax.org to sign up and watch for free. Earth Day may have passed, but the movement continues. Type in earthax.org to take part. Secretary, we're speaking with you a couple of days before the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. In 2017, you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that you're an optimist. You said, I know that on Earth Day 2017, the future feels less certain and understandably so, but something big has already begun around the world that can be slowed but not stopped. So on this Earth Day, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're still confronting the climate crisis, and now we're facing an economic emergency Are you still optimistic on Earth Day 2020? And if so, why?
0: Well, I'm an optimist by nature, uh, but I also legitimately, when I stop and look at what the possible choices are, I believe we have the ability to make a set of choices that can set us on a course to win the battle against the climate crisis. But we don't have the political will. We don't have the political leadership. That's the problem but we have an opportunity in 2020 to change that too. So I am an optimist because I think that uh, before the coronavirus, there was a tremendous amount of momentum building and we were seeing the private sector moving in ways that were already using the marketplace to make a transformation. Uh, Solar, for instance, had become cheaper than coal by far because coal has never, ever calculated the true costs, the accounting costs of black lung or damage to the atmosphere, damage to the air quality, lives lost because of uh, environmentally induced asthma. Children hospitalized, 55 billion a year because of environmentally induced asthma. I mean, there are all kinds of attendant costs. So that marketplace was responding to that. Uh, Solar power technician was the fastest growing job in America. Wind turbine uh, technician was the second fastest. So yeah, I'm optimistic because you start pushing the technology curve in the United States of America, and you express a vision about where you want to go, we have the best innovation, best creativity, best allocation of capital of any nation on the planet. And if we have leadership that's moving in that direction, I believe very deeply that we can meet the challenge of the next nine years, which the top scientists of the IPCC have said is the time we have left to make decisions that will avoid the worst consequences of climate.
2: Secretary, this is Shane. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, On that note, in in mobilizing people and resources uh, to make a difference, you launched World War Zero last November, along with several other A-list celebrities and uh, politicians and and leaders in the space, uh, including Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose school at, at USC sponsors this podcast just trying to get some background. When you launched that effort, when you were putting it together, what was front of mind? What, what, If you could accomplish, you know, hopefully several things, but if there was one large thing that you'd like to see come out of World War Zero, what would it be?
0: Well, message is always critical, but I think we've learned over time that so are the messengers. And to some degree, uh, we've become polarized around where the message has been coming from. So Certain politicians have had a freebie. They've been able to be deniers and procrastinators, deniers of two plus two is four. I mean, basic science. Uh, they've denied it and had impunity. So uh, what we were, what, what, what we have organized World War Zero around is the notion that uh, there are a whole bunch of folks in America who take climate change seriously, the climate crisis seriously, who are. Not your usual suspects. Uh, what what World War Zero is is an is an alliance of unlikely allies. It is unlikely that Arnold Schwarzenegger and John Kasich, former governor of Ohio, and John Kerry would all be together at a town hall in Columbus talking about the urgency of doing something about climate change. But we were. We did it with great success. Two thousand people came out to listen. Uh, it is unlikely that in most people's minds that. Uh, Uh, the guy who chased after Osama bin Laden and led our special forces in the military would be standing up saying, this is a serious issue. We need to do something about it. But he is. General Stanley McChrystal, a distinguished service career, uh, is saying this is a major national security issue and we have to deal with it." it. It's unlikely that you would have probably the Archbishop of Canterbury and two former prime ministers of Britain and President Carter and President Clinton and A whole bunch of other people coming together with scientists and business people and academicians and others, all of whom are trying to explain why this is a a, a challenge, a crisis, but also why it's an opportunity that if we take advantage of it, we're going to create more jobs. We're going to have better health. We're going to have greater security. And we're bringing these voices to the table to try to change the conversation. Uh, Hopefully, to translate it into people's willingness to stop the polarization, stop digging a hole, and start taking advantage of America's potential to create technologies and and to be the, the, the leader of the world in uh, creating this new energy, new economy.
3: Mr. Secretary, this is Brandon. Uh, I enjoyed serving with you in the Obama administration. Uh, just to uh, build on your answer, uh, we're in these hyperpartisan partisan times. Even the response to the pandemic has been hyper-partisan. And there's been other organizations on other issues like guns, uh, where high-profile influencers have come together, uh, the group the time is now. Uh, but we haven't had as much success on guns as we would like. What will World War Zero do to penetrate the partisan bubble on climate that is different than other advocacy organizations? Well, first
0: of all, let me, let me point out that guns is a very different animal in a way. Uh, guns is, is a core belief structure within the framework of our Constitution, and it has been built up and, and exploited over many, many years now. And it's a more uh, emotional, difficult issue than is accepting the idea uh, of uh, scientific evidence showing. That if you don't take certain kinds of steps that actually make your life better, uh, you're, you're going to uh, pay trillions of dollars of damages, and you're going to potentially die of one thing or another. Uh, I think there's a difference in those two issues, number one. Number two, uh, it's what I was saying earlier, that I, I think it's how you talk about it. It's how, what, what kind of vision are you painting to people? Uh, Donald Trump was able to go out and say to Americans after the Green New Deal came out, hey, look at what they say. They're going to say everything's going to be on renewables within 10 years. And and he joked about how somebody's wife was going to say, hey, you can't watch TV tonight because there's no electricity. And that penetrates very quickly. I mean, it's smart branding, obviously, but it's also a lie. It's a complete and total lie. Nobody's talking about that. That's the classic set up the red herring for a man. And, and have a debate about something that isn't the debate at all. No, I'm not talking, nor is General Stanley McChrystal, nor is Arnold Schwarzenegger, nor is John Kasich, former governor of Ohio, nor Christy Todd Whitman, the former Republican governor of uh, New Jersey, nor Chuck Hagel, the former Republican the senator from Nebraska, nor Bill Cohen, the former defense secretary and Republican senator from Maine. I can go through a long list. These people are not presenting that false choice. They are all talking about the ways in which the embrace of dealing with climate change and moving to this new economy has upsides, all of them quantifiable. I mean, literally, what I mentioned earlier, we do have the greatest uh, cause of children being hospitalized in the United States every summer is environmentally induced asthma. And we, the taxpayers, spend $55 billion a year on that. Do you think most Americans know that? No, their taxpayer dollars are going now to deal with the problem of, of, uh, of energy pollution. So if we take away the energy pollution, you, you get to do what people are seeing now for the first time in years all around the world, because industrial work has stopped in so many different places, the skies are clearer than they've ever been. The emissions are lower than they've been. In Venice, there was an article on the front page of a newspaper showing how in Venice, the citizens were able to actually look down into the canals and see down into the canal and see fish swimming around. And they couldn't do that for years because of all the boats and traffic churning through them and so forth. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to stop doing those things, but it does mean that you may be able to find better ways of doing some of them. For instance, an electric car. If you can go, and the next generation coming out in a year or so of cars are going to have new batteries, they're going to go 400 miles or so, but you can go 370 miles today on one charge of an electric car. You can go from zero to to 60 miles an hour in 2.6 seconds in some electric cars. I mean, the quality of driving of these cars is extraordinary, and most people in America don't drive more than 100, 150, 200 miles on any given day, let alone 300 and some, and and incredibly, if we built out the infrastructure for rapid charging, superchargers they're called, you can drive an electric car anywhere you want. So the bottom line is we can keep the quality of life we have, we can improve the quality of life we have we can be healthier, less sick from pollution, we can have less cancer, we can have less costs of healthcare, we can have less military conflicts we may have to deal with, which is why General McChrystal, Admiral Lee Gunn, the former, uh, the former policy and planning chief at the Pentagon, these are all security experts who are telling us the world will be safer, the United States will be safer, our troops will be safer if we live in a world where we don't have to compete and perhaps fight over our source of energy. So I think as that conversation changes, coronavirus may have now opened Americans up to the idea, you know what? Maybe experts do know something. Maybe we ought to listen to the scientists, not the politicians. Maybe we ought to be listening to the military experts about conflict, et cetera. Uh, and so, there's been a real difference between what Donald Trump says and what the experts say at his own briefings, at his own briefings, which is why today the polls show that only 36 percent of Americans trust Donald Trump and 88 or something percent trust the medical people. And, and so uh, I think that's what's going to happen ultimately on this issue of climate uh, crisis.
2: Mr. Secretary, something you said really hit home for me. You articulated some of the benefits of addressing climate change and then pointed out that a lot of people probably don't know that. Uh, The communications aspect in my world on the right, you know I I either spend my time with people in Republican politics who don't prioritize this issue a whole lot, or just people that I meet through my kids' school and and sports and stuff like that who don't think about these issues at all, regardless of how they would feel if they did think about them. Um, So I think the communications aspect and and making the tent bigger is huge. I sometimes wonder, do you think some of the infighting on the left in so far as is natural gas qualify as a clean resource? Are you a bad person if you want renewables by 2050 and I want them by 2040? Do you think some of that infighting sort of betrays the larger point, which is to help people understand the benefits and, and make the tent a little bit bigger? Or do you think it's all just part and parcel of a deliberative process?
0: Well, it's part and parcel of it. But yes, it does get in the way for sure uh, on both sides without any question whatsoever. We both have uh, the Republicans and Democrats, liberals, conservatives, right, left, all have elements that tend to be more vociferous and more extreme about one aspect of an issue or another. And it shuts a lot of things down. The average person in America uh, it doesn't enjoy that. It doesn't want to take part. It's part of what drives people away from the legitimate conversation. And it's one of the motivations for World War Zero, trying to come in between here and bring people to the table that uh, that people can stop and actually listen to, uh, which is very very important here. There are books written. I mean, Sir Nicholas Stern, uh, British, uh, great economist, very respected globally, has written at length about how much more it is going to cost citizens, taxpayers, to not act than to act. And, and we're seeing that now building in, in many different ways. Uh, there are island Pacific states uh, that are going to disappear. I know the president of Palau, for instance, Tommy Ramengansau is a friend of mine. I've seen him at various conferences and meetings for years. He used to be debating what his mitigation or adaptation would be now he only has one option left he has to find a place for his nation to move to all his people have to go live somewhere else because it's going to disappear the the atolls that china is busy building uh, flow, you know stationary aircraft carriers on in the south china sea uh, you know i don't think we have to worry too much about them because 50 years from now they're going to be gone they'll be underwater particularly with china's increased contribution to the emissions China burns 50% of the coal of the world. Now, I personally went to China and negotiated with President Xi and the Chinese leadership and got them for the first time to come to the table at the UN conference and be constructive and work with us. And we, together, the United States and China announced our reductions in Beijing two years before the Paris Agreement. We did that to set the example and try to make Paris happen. Uh, now China is, you know, bringing online something like 21 gigawatts, which doesn't mean a lot to people, but it's just a huge amount of power, which will be powered from coal-fired plants. It's crazy. It's actually, it, it, there's an insanity quality to it. But because there's no leadership pushing them to uh, a different set of choices, that's happening. And we're all going to be affected negatively by
3: that. Secretary, this is Brandon again. I had a a question uh, about with your Senate experience. You just mentioned in response to Shane, you know, that the extremists on both sides uh, can be uh, challenging to get uh, action done. I'm wondering, you know, right now with the way the Senate rules are, 18% of the country can stop anything with the filibuster. Do you think we need any structural changes to get meaningful policy done on climate going forward?
0: I think it would help. I don't think it's a sine qua non. I don't think it's the only way it could happen, but but I think it obviously would facilitate it. Sure, it would help. I mean, when I went into the Senate, I went. I was elected the year Ronald Reagan won Massachusetts. Uh, he won it twice, actually, and uh, we're not the sort of crazy liberal state people think we are. There are a few things that have contributed to it, but we were the number two property tax rebellion state in the country. Prop two and a half. Uh, we have. A, we had busing challenges here. We've had a lot of different fights. So states aren't as, as, as labelable as I think they are. Everybody has a pretty common interest here and there. And we have to appeal to that. And when I went to the Senate in 85, sworn in, we had a Senate where we had ideological differences, but we sat and talked to each other. We worked across the aisle. We, we did compromise. We knew the art of compromise, the essentiality of compromise. I watched that begin to change in the 1990s, starting with the Gingrich revolution, the contract for America, and then proceeding to the Tea Party and to the Freedom Caucus, and finally to a hostile takeover of the Republican Party by the current president. It's effectively what happened. And, and so we're living in a very different political world where you're punished for stepping across the aisle to make a deal. You're, you're an accommodator. You become a rhino very quickly or whatever the pejorative is. And the result is that people are scared. They don't do it. I'm shocked by the fear, frankly. I'm disappointed by it. I'm disappointed by the fact that people won't stand up for the Constitution over president or power or or party. That's disappointing. Uh, I remember President Kennedy famously said, there's a reason Profiles of Courage is a very short book, you know, very (laughs) thin book. Um, so anyway, I, I think that it's changed. Now they threaten people in their own caucus with the potential of a primary. And you guys both know, you know that that there, there's this, you know, oh, you're going to be primaried. And I saw Arlen Specter go down because of that. And I can't remember, I mean, Bob Corker is no longer there. Jeff Flake's no longer there. If we drive people away with that kind of a test, well, we're not going to get anything done for our country. And I can tell you that I was at a number of conferences in the last couple of years since being secretary, uh, where I've heard foreign leaders of other countries standing up and speaking or their delegations, and they're overtly pushing a new narrative. The new narrative is that this is no longer the American century. America is a country in decline. It can't get anything done. It's gridlocked. They can't even pass a budget. They don't make any choices. Look at our airports. Look at our uh, you know, ability to move quickly and deal with things. That's the narrative. And it's a powerful narrative and it's out there. And we do not have a counter to that narrative right now. We have a counter. America for sure has the counter. We're the country that invented the internet, the country that went to the moon. We put our minds to it. We do great things. We're just not being asked to and we're not doing them. And you can't name for me one great infrastructure program in America. None. I mean we're you know our, our our grandparents built the the bridges and tunnels and the railroads that we still ride on and drive through and so forth. We're not doing it. we're barely keeping up. We have a huge deficit in infrastructure, and think of the jobs that are there. You want jobs in America? Spend some money on infrastructure that's exactly how Roosevelt got us out of a depression, and by the way, we're about to potentially have exactly that, depending on what happens with coronavirus. But the unemployment levels, I am told by experts, and I listen to them, could go anywhere from 20 to 30% in the next month if we can't uh, get the testing going and bring our economy alive in a cogent manner.
1: One one sticking point, Secretary, as we think about the economic recovery and right now as, as lawmakers consider policy options to get the economy back up and running is support for the oil and gas industry here in the U.S., which has been hammered by lower demand from coronavirus, but also low oil prices due to other geopolitical uh, issues. Uh, And that also brings in the climate conversation of what is the role of the fossil fuel industry going forward anyway? Is this a moment when we should be transitioning away from it, not offering policy support, but rather really shutting down the fossil fuel sector? I think people in the climate community feel like there's no role for fossil fuels in future. What do you think the role of oil and gas specifically is in, in a world where we need to Massively cut carbon emissions. Is there any role for them in transitioning, or is that uh, you know too great of a leap for an oil company to make to completely become decarbonized?
0: Well, you won't, you won't, you won't get our economy going uh, by any standard if you just shut them down. I mean that that'll be that'll create. I mean that's the opposite of a transition. So I'm for a transition. I'm for being smart about how we move away, and we have a budget carbon budget. We have the ability to continue to burn X amount. It's just that we're way exceeding that budget right now. We're burning way more than we should be. Now, we will still need natural gas as a bridge fuel in certain situations. We have what's called baseload for our companies and manufacturers, steel, aluminum, big plants, everybody. There's a baseload that a company has of what it needs to run that plant. And if you you can shift that base load during the day when you have the sun shining or when the wind's blowing, you can shift it to alternative renewable. But the question looms large, what do you do when the sun isn't shining and the wind's not blowing? There's a study of California, uh, which uh, sec- former Secretary of Energy Ernie Moniz's uh, co- uh, environmental initiative has done, the Energy Futures Initiative, and, and it showed that the longest california has gone and any stretch without wind has been 10 days so you need to figure out where's that baseload going to come from now until we have better greater battery storage uh long distance transmission other things uh we're we're, we're kind of hung up we, it, it slows the transition it puts a presents a problem to it but not one that can't be resolved i mean america uh, you know you, you folks know well that America doesn't even have a real grid. Uh, 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 we have various grids. We have an East Coast grid. We have a West Coast grid. We have a line that goes from Chicago to the Dakotas. And then Texas has its own grid. We need to be able we have a big hole in the middle of our country. We need to be able to send energy anywhere in our country. In an age of artificial intelligence, and quantum computing, that should be achieve, quickly achievable for us but we're not even building out that connection so we can do that. And we have all kinds of interstate hassles. We've got to work it out. It takes leadership to work out how you're going to balance America's energy needs.
1: Can I just jump in and press on on the oil question? In some ways, I think electricity is easier to decarbonize than oil. I mean, so how do we get off of that polluting fuel? You mentioned EVs earlier, but we're not seeing the uptake we really need. And Oil is arguably oh, no, we
3: can
0: get off. Look, if we want to, if we make the decision, we can transition very, very quickly. In fact, the electric power grid is one of the quickest and easiest parts of our transition. Uh, and we should be able to do that fairly uh, rapidly. You don't need oil. Natural gas, obviously, is is the wiser choice because it's about a 50 percent reduction in, in CO2 emissions. But it's still a fossil fuel. And still emits. I mean, it's 50 percent less than coal or oil, but it's that 50 percent difference is still 100 percent of what nuclear, for instance, would be. I happen to be somebody who thinks that we shouldn't be giving up on the idea of having 10 or so demonstration uh, fourth-generation modular nuclear plants because they're zero emissions, and maybe that's the reserve if we can't find the other technology or move fast enough to renewables. And and I'm for looking at the all of the above kind of solutions here that get the job done, do it in a smart way. But uh, look, bottom line is uh, we've got to move faster off of fossil fuels and we've got to do, we should be providing the incentives for the alternatives, not providing incentives for the prolonged build out of a whole new infrastructure uh, that ultimately is going to be a stranded asset.
3: This sector is Brandon. Again, you know, a lot of the discussion on Capitol Hill right now uh, for clean energy policies is, you know, tax credits. Many of the things we did in the Recovery Act that were successful. But you talked about we have got nine years to turn this around. Your organization, World War Zero, the spirit of it is a World War Two mass mobilization. Do you think there's an opportunity to get policies done uh, like we did in World War Two, government owned, contractor operated facilities, to have a mass you know, industrialization of the infrastructure that you're talking about to move faster? Or do you think in the current political environment, we're just like tax credits and other policies are the best we can do?
0: I do believe that there is an opportunity here to change the paradigm. Yes. And the war analogy is not it's not made up. It's, it's, it, but it doesn't have to be the full measure of what you just described. I mean, I'm not for taking over companies. So, I mean, Ford Motor Company was enlisted to make the bombers and it, it did it because we needed to win the war. And, and the workers there turned out an extraordinary, I think, B-24, one, I mean, something every five minutes or something. It's just stunning what, what was achieved. Um, we need to, be producing uh, vehicles very rapidly that are not uh, polluting vehicles. Uh, i give you an example. I've, I've become very aware of and may be involved with a company down in Arizona that's uh, called Nikola, Nicola, uh, Nicola mm-hmm. Energy Company, and it's producing an, a hydrogen energy long-haul truck and Anheuser, uh, Bush has already used this truck as a test run for some of its products. They like it so much. They've ordered a whole bunch of them from them. And this company is now in a joint venture with uh, a company with uh, Fiat Chrysler in Europe to produce some of these trucks. And I, I you know, if it works, uh, that's the future, folks. And we ought to be encouraging that future. This is a long haul truck that uses hydrogen. And as long as you're producing the hydrogen in a way that isn't highly intensive carbon, uh, which can be done, it's going to be done over time, it's not there yet, you ultimately could get to a no-carbon production of hydrogen. Hydrogen in itself is no no emissions. And all of a sudden you've got a truck driving 500 to 750 miles on one tank, one fill-up, and uh, you've changed the face of uh, the emissions curve this can happen. And if we were to provide the just incentives, economic, uh, like we normally have with tax incentives or deductions or a direct subsidy for a period of time, a, l- a whole lot of people in the market will rush there. Why? Because that's where the money is. That's how the market works. And and so I, I I think we could really excite a whole lot of activity. We ought to be putting a huge amount of money, more than we've put, I mean, like the space race, into storage. Because whoever solves the storage problem is going to make trillions of dollars. And it's going to be incredible for our economy because we've really won the war then. I mean, if you have storage of 25, 30 days, then you can move to renewables with impunity. And this notion that, that we have to go back to fulfilling our economic dreams by using the old fuel that we know is doing damage is literally the, the definition of insanity. I mean, insanity is when you know something's not working out, you keep doing the same thing. I think a new vision could really set America on a really amazing economic track. And then we become the seller to the world of those technologies and those products. That's what bothers me right now, is we're not on the hunt, on our own, pushing the curve of discovery in the ways that America has generally done and that has produced the extraordinary wealth and well-being and quality of life that we have in our nation. Uh, and, And we're falling behind some other people in the world as a result of that. We may still be the largest economy in the world. We are. But China is going to be the largest just by sheer numbers. And the question is going to be whether we're going to build out the infrastructure of the 21st century, have airports that rival the airports of the rest of the world, have trains that can go 300 miles an hour. I mean, all these things, we're just we're not doing them. And I think there's a huge economic benefit to our doing those things.
1: So I think I hear a mix of optimism and some pessimism there, Secretary, going back to the first question. Well,
0: not pessimism, but you do hear a frustration. I mean, I'm not pessimistic because it's all there to be done. I'd be pessimistic if it wasn't there to be done. I, I know what we can do. So I'm optimistic still, but I am frustrated and even angry that people are dying in some places in our country from droughts, from fires, from mudslides, from floods, uh, and, and now from coronavirus, because people don't want to believe the experts. That That's that's a legitimate source of anger for anybody. And we have a chance now to change it, do something about it. And I hope every American will take part in that process.
1: So you mentioned bringing everyone together as part of this movement. One of the climate community's concerns when World War Zero launched was that it lacked membership diversity. Um, And so people were concerned that it would call attention to climate issues with high profile celebrities, but wouldn't help support people most affected by the climate crisis. Often people who don't have much of a platform. Uh, Emily Atkin, who writes the newsletter Heated, pressed you on that in an interview last December. I'm wondering how has World War Zero, if at all, worked to integrate more diverse voices? Voices in the coalition.
0: Well, we're reaching out constantly. I mean, on the contrary, we're very sensitive to that. We we are completely committed. Every person who is who, who is part of our influencer group is deeply committed to climate justice. The peop- the kids. When I talk about fifty-five billion people, uh, fifty-five billion dollars that goes to children being hospitalized vast number of those kids come from minority communities because that's where the diesel trucks get diverted. Uh, that's where the pollution is worst, That's where the least health care exists. And we're seeing that underscored now in the coronavirus challenge. So we're very much, you know, reaching out. I And I've talked to somebody like Al Sharpton, who is part of our coalition and, and others. I mean, we're expanding our diversity on a constant basis. But yes, we did start purposefully with some of the um, activists, influencers, as we call them, uh, whether it's General McChrystal or Admiral Gunn or others. uh, And and we're reaching out to people of color and and to, uh, you know, gender. And it's, it's open to anybody who wants to come on board. But we are very much focused on the issues that matter to address the inequality that exists in American society today and which is only growing. And we see it so deeply and starkly and heartbreakingly in the context of coronavirus. My daughter is a clinical care physician and she's right now in the emergency room at Mass General Hospital. And she has talked to me about the numbers of people coming in from Chelsea and Revere, uh, and other places where they're jammed in and you've got a lot of immigrants and so forth. So we're, we're, we're dedicated to being fair and sensible about how we improve the fabric of life in America. But for the beginning, uh, we're trying to reach out to the people who are there and able to make a difference. We also have some of the young activists, people from Climate Strike, Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement. They're involved, and we want them very, very much because they've been a terrific cry to the conscience of our country, and, and they're really the ones who've ignited this this new round of passion to get the job done.
1: Finally, you know, the goal of World War Zero was to host town halls across the country and have 10 million climate conversations in 2020. Obviously, the nature of coronavirus has made town halls more difficult. Just to close us out here, how are you going to meet that goal? How are you going to do this amid coronavirus?
0: Obviously, our ability to do people-to-people group meetings, which we wanted to do to energize people locally, is switch to digital. We always had a major digital component of our strategy. We were always intending to use Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and, and so forth, the social you know media platforms to communicate for those 10 million conversations. And that is still our plan. And we need to raise money. I asked people to go to worldwarzero.com and donate to small amounts, whatever but we need to make this also a grassroots movement that is going to demand accountability. And the way to do that is to motivate our fellow citizens to become involved in our own democratic process.
1: Secretary, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
0: It's a pleasure, great to be with you. Thank you very much. I like the quality of the sound.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great, always our goal. Tia Nelson is the Climate Change Program Director at the Outrider Foundation, an organization working to end the threat of nuclear war and reverse the course of global climate change. She's also the daughter of former Senator and Governor Gaylord Nelson, the founder of Earth Day. This week marked the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, which first took place on April 22, 1970. As a longtime champion for conservation and climate education, I wanted to get Tia's perspective on how the environmental movement has evolved over the decades. 20 million Americans took part in the inaugural Earth Day, a nationwide rally for clean air and water. So what are some of the biggest differences between then and now? And what, for better or worse, is the same? Tia dialed in from Washington, D.C., where she's currently taking care of her 93-year-old mother. Here's what she had to say.
4: When I reflect on Earth Day 50 years ago the power of individual action and the and and the enormous power of youth to drive uh, a political conversation around the environmental challenges we faced was enormous and it, that remains true today Do you
1: think there's been progress enough
4: progress Well, those are two different questions. Uh, There's been enormous progress. When my father founded Earth Day 50 years ago, there was no Clean Air Act. There was no Clean Water Act. Soon after the first Earth Day, a Republican president created the Environmental Protection Agency, Richard Nixon, created the Environmental Protection Agency to protect everyone's right to breathe clean air and drink clean water. These were things that we might take for granted today that didn't exist then fog was in every uh, was plaguing every major city in america all of the major ri- rivers in america were unswimmable and unfishable uh, we've made enormous progress in, in many by many many measures uh, on the other hand we are faced with the greatest environmental challenge of our time uh, climate change we are really late in in acting on this urgent challenge were politically divided, though, that is not unique to American history. Think of what was happening uh, in the 60s. My father's call to action on the first Earth Day was successful beyond his wildest dreams because of a grassroots response to his call to action. And so, uh, you know, for a more contemporary comparison, think of Greta Thunberg, she acted alone and went and sat and protested in front of the Swedish parliament in silence with a sign and launched a global youth movement on climate change with that simple act of morality and value and purpose. And it had an outcome that was unimaginable to her as it was to my father because the, it, 1970 1971 was a very politically divided time, but my father was brilliant at reaching across the aisle and building bridges and uniting people to protect our rights to a clean and uh, environment and a prosperous economy. And he was brilliant in that way. And, and so that call to action for bipartisanship to address issues which affect each and every American and everyone who lives on this planet. That is not a partisan issue.
1: So the Outrider Foundation website says, Outrider believes that political and cultural division disrupts climate progress. That's why we're here to help unite parties and communities in taking responsible action. So building upon what you were just saying... But a lot of people feel like we're even more divided now. I, I take your point that things were very much divided in 1970. But it feels like, I think for a lot of people, there's not enough happening. And it can be very disappointing to see congressional session after session not really producing You know, the bold legislation that I think a lot in the climate community would like to see and they feel like falls in line with climate science. So what keeps you going and believing that this is the right course of action, that bringing people together is the way forward rather than going too hard to one side and being relentless on that and, and not reaching out so much?
4: It's interesting when Outrider produced this film, When the Earth Moves, which brought together the voice of Arshini Prakash, the co founder of the Sunrise Movement, which advocates for the Green New Deal, and Bob Inglis, uh, uh, founder of Republic Ian, uh, which advocates a, a different climate change solution. But But they were and are united in their sense of urgency around addressing the climate change. Uh, crisis, And I, personally, I think that cable news amplifies our divisions uh, uh, in a way that isn't helpful. And what's important to me is that someone, a youth activist like Varshini and a conservative Republican like Bob have come together and say we, we're united in seeing a sense of urgency around this issue. So let's have a debate about what the solution should be. We shouldn't be debating the science that was settled long, long ago, right? Uh, and the debate should be, how do we create the social will and political capital uh, to adopt the policies we need to address this crisis? And I believe we can do that. And I believe that the politics are shifting not fast enough. Uh, but if you look, say, at the Yale Climate uh, Communications Project, which does climate change polling every six months for more than the last decade, you'll see that Republican youth today care just as much about climate change as Democratic youth do. And I, I think that, that there's a shift happening. It's not happening swiftly enough, but, but it is happening. And I take a a sense of cautious optimism in that.
1: So I'm hearing that the optimism lies largely in the next generation.
4: Uh, Well, yes, uh, though, you know, uh, it it would also be fair for youth to uh, to say it should not all rest on their shoulders. Right. I'm 63. I've been at this a long time. I've had some interesting conversations on social media with uh, youth activists, and I can tell you that 50 years ago, the voice of youth, in their response to my father's call to action, changed the course of American history. And I believe they are poised to do that again today.
1: Tia, thank you for reflecting back on Earth Day, uh, 1970, and here today in 1920 Really appreciate uh, that insight.
4: Oh, that's great. Uh, thanks for your interest in helping tell the story. And I, I hope you guys can share the film because I, I, I didn't want to make this film just as a, a reflection on the past. I want it to be a reflection on the past, the present and the future of the environmental movement. And I want everyone today, youth and adults alike, to understand that if we come together and work together, that we actually can address the climate change crisis, we can make a difference, and we can create a brighter future and celebrate Earth Day on the 100th anniversary.
1: That's it. That's our show. We hope you had an educational and inspiring Earth Day, especially with everything else that's going on these days. If you haven't subscribed to Political Climate yet, we hope that you do so. You can find the podcast on pretty much any podcasting service, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. And if you have a second, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. In the meantime, reach out on Twitter at poly underscore climate. We're also on Instagram with the same handle, sharing clips and engaging listeners there. Thanks again to you and until soon.